out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter, general creative human being, and also a writer, an author. This is Vashti Bunyan, who I spoke to very recently to find out about life, love, poetry and everything else. Um, she brought an album out in, well, she wrote it in 19... 19- 69 that came out in 1970 just another diamond day and then disappeared for several decades and then reappeared again in 2005 and then again another release in 2014 but has recently written a book titled wayward just another life to live this is um, out on white rabbit and uh, is also going to be available in hardback for the united states Later in 2023, I think March time. Let's go for March. So um, it's an absolutely amazing book. So this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, it's a classic. Anyway, this is it. Vashti, it's over to you. Probably just radio. Radio when I was a kid, that was the only thing really. Well, my father's record collection classical record collection lots of 78s um and you know all of that music is so familiar to me but i have no idea who it's by what anything's name is it's just all in my head and i think probably the house was full of music nobody played any instruments but it was always the radio or the or the record player radiogram yes the radio good old radiogram um that was always playing music um and i just oh it's really weird i know that hymns made a huge impact on me the tunes of the hymns the words when i remember them now thinking that i sang all these hymns with such oh was just such love for the music and I didn't have the faintest idea what the words meant at all when I look back at some of those hymns that I was singing I think oh my god how could why didn't it occur to me that this was (laughs) something I I might grow up to reject but uh, yes I think hymns and carols are what really um, went very very deep into uh, my little child head yes well and, absolutely uh, and and that uh, and and also because um i terribly wanted to be a choir boy <laughs> <laughs> so many kind of um disappointments at such a young age really <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely but i can't think of a particular moment when i felt that i i had to be making music Yes, it's kind of interesting. So were your yeah. were your parents, were they, obviously they had a radiogram, so there was a certain cultural sort of background to them. What were, what were their kind of characters and profession like? What were their kind of, you know, what did they specialise in? Ah, uh, well, my mother, um, I think when, when she married my father, she gave up any idea of being a singer herself or a performer herself, although in her younger times she had been. Not not professionally, but but that was what she loved. And of course she gave up all of that to marry my father. Yes. My, my father 
was a dentist by profession, hated it, and was an inventor by um, ambition. Uh, he, he he invented non-stick sticking plasters. <laughs> right. God, that's useful. I mean, you know, that's that's, that's kind of yes he, yeah he invented quite a few things but um he he was a very he was an eccentric man with um i think he was very special towards his daughters in a way that he was very ambitious for my sister my older sister who was very clever but um sort of i don't know he allowed me to, to do uh, a lot of things that most parents wouldn't allow their children to do and to be very free. And and, and I just went everywhere all by myself from yes. the age of seven. I, I didn't I didn't have restrictions and I, I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. Well, I think sometimes being the the I was the the third of three children. There was two boys than me. And I think my parents went through that phase, especially the first one, which was late. We're talking the late 50s here. I mean, there was a—I think there was something called Doctor Spock's book where you had to do to bring children into the world in a certain way, and you had to, to you know, <laughs> stick to this particular publication, which was horrendous. But by the time it came to me, I think my mum had given up with that whole idea, and also she told me that she'd been offered a thalidomide drug as well for morning sickness as well during that late fifties period, because that was the wonder wonder drug of the time, which thank God she yeah. didn't. But um yeah, but yeah, Dr. Spock and his kind of magic ways. This isn't the start. Oh goodness, Dr. Spock. I often think about Dr. Spock because yes, that was the book that I relied on when I had my first baby in 1970. Um and it was the only thing available to me. And then I look at my kids having their kids and they've got so much on the internet uh, to to give them advice and you know different kinds of advice and and I think oh well it was probably good that I only had Doctor Spock yes you, you you didn't have too many kind of options but you... I didn't have all these conflicting options yeah yes yeah. so sort of coming back to your you know the childhood and also your book because I mean it's so beautifully put together and obviously it must have been an amazing process to sort of go back and I suppose uh -huh. revisit it as well as kind of process it because obviously it's such a fascinating story which I have come across with a few artists who did so much in that kind of 60s period you know musically and then suddenly had that moment where they just literally smashed up their equipment and walked off stage and never ever touched the keyboard again or touched a guitar and it's yeah. you know it was only it was kind of interesting because there's one particular band who were the kind of beginners of prog rock from the late or the mid 60s called clouds or one two three and this guy you know just said that's it i've smashed my equipment he's never played music since but then in the 90s david bowie started mentioning this band and this guy and then people started to track him down and then it's like oh right people now want me on their prog rock show so <laughs> when you were more, yes i know the birth of prog rock i found it which is so exciting so your process of writing the book these are kind of probably moments and memories that had been slightly battened down so when you started to revisit that that younger self when you were sort of going through the 12 14 year old phase going to boarding school yeah. watching express was it expresso bongo you watched expresso bongo yeah which and yeah. cliff richard had a profound you know influence on your life 
Yeah, really. And uh, it's quite funny, really, because when I was starting all of this, coming back to music and being interviewed again, my daughter said, don't you dare mention Cliff Richard. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, because he was just so, you know, he became so uncool. But when I was 13, 14, the, the British... Uh, young pop singers at that time were just, I mean, they they just filled my head with total wonder and, and longing, I think. Yes. And and he was he was the main one at that time. And I, I you know, when I listen back to his very first recordings, they were amazing. And and his 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 phrasing, his his musicianness, I suppose it's called musicality now, isn't it? But anyway, um as a musician, I think he was he was pretty incredible for that time. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't you can't knock him because actually no one knew what was coming next. So uh-huh. he was kind of right there at the forefront. And I know when because, you yeah. know, I obviously I love, love David Bowie and also Lemmy from Motorhead, which is quite. Uh-huh. But they were born the same year, six, uh, 1947. So they were that, gen, you know, that period. And. They always yeah. said when, you know, people asked them what their main musical influence was, they both would say separately. But, you know, it was always Little Richard, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, you know, and they and the music that you grew up to with at that age between like 14 to 16, possibly 18. It, you you can't be that age again. You know, that influence that bands have on you. Yeah. You know, yeah. people say, well, but what about the latest this and the latest that? And you can appreciate it, but you're not. 14 or 16 where that record that artist means so much to you and and yeah and and cliff you know would have been the man you know he was he had on british tv uh, on black and white tv that our neighbors had you know it was a six five special and then it was boy meets girl and then and they were they were all british kids and uh I, I suppose it was only through radio that I came to 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 hear Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and those people who were very influential on my my songwriting, but uh, that was maybe a bit later, and yeah, but certainly at thirteen fourteen, it was it was those oh they were kids really yes. Those kids that were on those. They're having an adventure. I remember Summer Holiday thinking it was amazing, but then I saw those early Beatles films, you know, from the 60s mm. being amazed, and then things like The yeah. Monkeys, and again, it was like, wow, this <laughs> is great, you know, and then you realise, no, no, you can't like The Monkeys, they're uncool, and you think, and then decades later, you listen, and you think, actually, they're just really good. I don't care who played the music. It was just great yeah. songs. So, <laughs> you know, it was like, you just have to re-embrace it again. And also... A lot of people I've interviewed, you know, who are slightly earlier generation than the 80s, um, they always talk about the shadows and Hank, you know, and and people like that as being this huge influence. I mean, and it's like, oh, yes, of course, you you know, you appreciate it for what it was, because there was a classic film by Martin Scorsese a few years ago on the Ronan Stones Shine a Light. And there's, you know, a young Mick Jagger being interviewed in 1964, probably, and said, oh, how long do you think this will last? And Mick was like looking up going... Oh, I don't know, another 18 months. And we all laugh, don't we? Because, you know, he really meant it. You know, it was like, we'll probably end soon, won't it? So it's yeah. kind of, it's an interesting kind of moment. But then you also do your, in the book, you you mention your O-levels. You, you know, these, this is, you're a generation who are probably doing exams for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, oh. I, I, I wouldn't have known anything about whether it was for the first time or what. It was just truly terrifying and had to do it. <laughs> 
yeah, I, I, I failed. I think I failed the 11 plus. I can't remember. But yeah, I failed everything before that. So um, yeah, O-levels were very frightening, but I did I, I did get them. Yes. And you got a piano as well from, from reading. So... Oh, my father bought a piano from the junk shop around the corner for a tenner. Uh, because he'd sold my violin for a tenor a couple of years before that and so you know I guess he was making up for it <laughs> but then but then again he sold the piano a few months later when I was back at school yes <laughs> so you know yeah things things didn't mean so much then yeah and uh, well, with, and was music at that stage in your life were you kind of quite driven by it did you sort of find with the you know what you, did you sort of think this is something that's kind of deep inside my DNA? I I don't know. I can't remember how I felt about about myself in music, uh, but I just know that I was completely immersed in the pop music of the day. That 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 was what I wanted all the time was to hear more and more and more of it, and uh, it wasn't until I went to art school and my friend had a guitar um, that I started. Well, we both started writing songs, and I realised that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a painter. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to be a secretary, and I didn't want to. Oh, there were all kinds of things I didn't want to do, but I knew that I would wanted to be a pop singer. That was my main ambition, and I really thought I could do it. I really thought that the songs that I was writing would work. And that my main ambition was to get into the pop charts, into the top 20 with my own songs and just my guitar. And yes. Nobody did that. <laughs> no. I mean, this is, this is quite ambitious because such a thing hadn't actually been invented. <laughs> no. And this in fact, the first person I saw actually do that was Donovan, um, to, to stand there with just a guitar, to be on a mainstream pop music programme. Uh, I thought, oh, well, somebody's do it. Somebody's done it. That's great. That's That's really good. Somebody has done it. Yes. And did you did you gravitate towards the singer songwriter quite quickly at this stage? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, certainly. And and meeting Andrew Oldham as well and him having these incredible amounts of instruments. I mean, it was just an amazing thing to witness was this young person because he would I think I was 20. He was 21. And he'd already brought the stones to incredible success. Yes. To be around all these young people when uh, me growing up, it was always the older generation that were, were running the show. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, these young people were coming in and taking over. And it was a, an incredible experience to, to, to be in amongst that. Yes, absolutely. This was going to take me where I wanted to go. And did you manage to finish your, it was the fine art course, wasn't it? No, I was thrown out. You were thrown out. There you go. It just didn't happen, did it? <laughs> <laughs> so how did you manage to meet Andrew and and then sort of obviously the, the Stones and Mick? Um, I, I, I was at a, a party given by my parents' friends who were 
traditional theatrical people that the, the man was an entrepreneur there the, the the woman was an old old school actress from from the 40s and 50s and, and all these theatrical people around me and my mother had made me bring my guitar uh, and I sat on a chair amongst all these theatrical amazing people all seemed to be rather old to me but anyway <laughs> I sat on a chair and I sang a, I sang a few songs and unbeknownst to me, there was an agent there called Monty Mackey who knew Andrew Oldham. She knew that Marianne Faithful had just left his management and she thought that I might um, appeal to him. Yes. Um, whether I did or not, I don't know, but I don't think, um, I didn't think anything would come of, of the meeting, but uh, he summoned me and gave me a uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards song to record. And I was outraged. <laughs> yes, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I want to record my songs. Yes, so who are these? Who are these duo upstarts? Because <laughs> <laughs> had you been to New York before then? Because Yes, I had. So yeah. you'd already, I, I mean, which is an amazing adventure from the, you know, the early 60s. I mean, even passports at that stage used to, um, it was a different process. Often you'd just go into into a post office, wouldn't you, and buy a passport for a year and off yeah, you'd go. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, well, it was because my older sister lived in New York and she had uh, three little boys that she wanted looking after. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the most wonderful, cool adventure. I was taken over to be um, a person to look after her little boys. And it, it was just, well, my, my brother-in-law took me down to the East Village and I saw the freewheeling Bob Dylan in a shop window and I bought it. And from then on, I just thought, this, this, this is my education. This is what's been missing for me. This is really what I want to do. And uh, that's when I went back to London. And, and I, I, before I met Andrew Oldham, I had been going around knocking on doors, trying to find somebody to represent me. Yes. Uh, but, they, you know, I was this scruffy girl in an old jumper and, <laughs> and an old guitar. Because um, that, that's what I, that was what I wanted to be, was a sort of uh, a, a traveling, uh, a traveling musician, uh, a hobo. <laughs> Excellent. That didn't go down too well in Denmark Street in London, uh, Tin Pan Alley. No, no, because it's like I said before, those people were all another generation, and uh, of course they didn't. What would they think of me? You know, they just thought, "Sorry, dear, you're not commercial," and uh, patted me on the backside and opened the door. <laughs> yes, probably in a slightly weird way as well but yeah but but you 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 released the single which was written by Jagger and Richards yeah which obviously you know but you you managed to record the b-side which is the one that you wrote wrote for yourself so was songwriting something that was you felt came quite easily at this stage yes yes yeah I I had I had quite a lot of songs and that that one was chosen for the b-side and that that was one of the best times of my life. Actually, was um, being part of the arrangement with um, David Whitaker. He, he arranged the, the the A side, of course, but then he was given the B side to arrange with me, and so we we worked it out on his piano. And that was 
an amazing thing for me to have somebody else. This was what I wanted to have my songs orchestrated in some way. Uh, and so that was a dream. That was a dream. Yes, dear old David. That was that was quite something. And at that stage, I mean, there'd been a certain kind of early jazz, some interest in jazz clubs that started to appear in London as well, all, all over. And obviously the beatnik generation and Jack Kerouac's on the road and Allen Ginsberg was was there were they writers that you had also started to digest and and take an interest in at that stage because I know it's a bit of a cliche mm. but we love cliches probably not I didn't do a lot of reading <laughs> <laughs> um no I think that was my sister's generation you know it's incredible she's only five and a half years older than me but the difference in her experience of growing up and my experience of growing up and and uh, yeah for, for her it was the beat generation for me it was going into something else completely it was going into that mid-60s awareness a different awareness of the world and even now we see things so incredibly differently and and there's only those few years between us. But I think that there was a complete shift in generation from pre-war kids to post-war kids. We were, we were, well, I say it in the book, we were kind of spoiled. We hadn't been through horrors. No. And we were Actually, had the freedom to 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 trash everything. You know? <laughs> I know. It's um yes, I know with the I think we everyone took it quite complacently. But five. Well, no. After it was interesting, just jumping completely forward. But you know, I do remember the the kind of when the UK sort of was holding the Olympic Games, and it all just looked so bright and breezy and confident. And you're thinking, God. And then what happens next? And it's like, okay. But that's just you know that that kind of everything. I know not everyone's having the best time, but it, you know there was a confidence in the country that. Um, yeah. It feels quite different now so and it kind of oh, alters so quickly <laughs> yes. yes but that's a, that's a, that's just jumping decades isn't it really but then so as the 60s progressed and then we you know we had that kind of very early period with the the sort of the Beatles and Stones and then you know people like um, is it Shell Tammy who did sort of production with the Kinks and the Who and that you know music was changing the sounds were changing how was that kind of also affecting your Year and your sort of writing process because obviously suddenly you know as as a somebody who has gone back to listen to it you just realize each year there were so many incredible records being released that a few years before you know people couldn't have even dream dreamed of so it was an interesting period to be living through but also seeing this kind of change of almost um I mean it became I know it's a cliche but it's a bit technicolor isn't it and I know jumping into the 80s you know I I sort of realized that music changed a lot to do with the introduction of ecstasy came along and then suddenly people wanted a different sound and the 60s had a slightly similar vibe with obviously smoking pot but then there was LSD that came along as well and then you know things became quite different again and equipment changed but again that that's in each decade has new equipment and new instruments instruments so um yeah how was it for you as you progressed and looked at your next single after the the the, the one that um was wow. written by Jaguar and Keith Richards well because it wasn't Andrew Oldham because it was this Canadian producer called Peter Snell he bought me out of my contract with Andrew and a year later we recorded a song called Train Song with just 
two guitars, a, a double bass and a cello. And because I'd been so, I suppose, upset by the failure of something's just stick in your mind, um, this was what I wanted to go back to, was the simplicity of acoustic music. And, and actually, he, he did exactly what I wanted to do with that. And it was put out on Columbia and nothing happened to it at all. Nothing, not a thing. It was played on pirate radio once and that was about that. And uh, Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit of a disappointment. Yes. It oh. really was. It really was. And then I, I went back to Andrew Oldham after that because that had not worked. And I recorded several things more for him for immediate. And they were never released. And so I was... Uh, traumatized I suppose I would say now but at the time I just thought well I must be shit <laughs> and, I must be no good. and that's when I, I left everything that's I, I really did leave but I left with a, a horse and wagon heading. yes the horse and the, the horse and wagon period which is quite extraordinary because because there is a character that appears kind of in the book, who I sort of strangely enough sort of meet in the 80s and then did an interview with a few years ago, the famous Neil Oram, who's... Really? <laughs> yes, Neil, <laughs> who uh, who gives me an amazing interview. And um, yes, it's still with me ever since, yeah. But I, yeah, so I, in a cosmic ley line sort of way, went to the island Lewis and, you know, to see the stones at Callendish. But then stopped on you know drum and rocket and, and oh, no. sort of stayed with Neil Oram and uh and met this kind of character that I had no idea who he was and um and then heard about this kind of the warp and then sort of a bit more about his life as we you know stayed on his place where he'd got a traveling theater company and then so I was looking at the you know reading through the book and Neil appears and and that's and then doing the interview with him a few years ago or possibly last year you know he talks about his life growing up and this extraordinary relationship with his mother and then going to London and starting a gallery and a jazz club and all sorts of incredible things and suddenly you know because he's one of those characters who I'm fascinated by but has has you know one day will hopefully get a bit more recognition really but um yeah oh, so amazing. my goodness what an incredible link <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing the traveling theatre company my son left home at 16 and went and joined them <laughs> at drum the rocket did he he did God. what sort of year was that oh, not yeah. six, if you talk 87 yeah. i'll fall off my chair i think um <laughs> <laughs> uh, well if he was yeah 86 86 87 wow I, I was there in 87. Were you? Yeah, that was the year we went and travelled up there. And um, yes, and uh, yeah. How did, how did you come to be going there? Pardon? How did you come to be going? Well, to... it was one of those classics sort of reading, you know, your book and stuff. You know, you, you know, you get involved with in a relationship with somebody and she was a bit older than me at the time and had got sort of issues to do with her um the father of her child and wanted to go to Scotland because the legal system was slightly different. So it kind of, so off we went and I didn't, I wasn't relocating to Scotland, but I thought, Oh, you know, let's go to Scotland and have this adventure. And, um, 
Yes, it slightly traumatized me for a bit because we we sort of got there, and then she joined the theatre company, which meant me made me think, oh my god, my you know this relationship that meant so much has kind of come into a ter- terrible end and leaves me sort of on my own. We still go to Callendish, you know, the Isle of Lewis to see the stones, and the moon's going to be in the lowest place for you know twenty years. And there'd been this p- painting by a guy called Keith Payne, who was a bit of a famous old hippie down in Suffolk area. Um, and then I drove, left left this woman, Helen, not left her literally, but she stayed to join the theatre company. And I drove back to Suffolk on my own in my Ford Fiesta 1.1, feeling slightly <laughs> traumatised by that experience. So she probably joined, you know, the theatre company your um, your son was in. He was in. How amazing. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. So we have these adventures in life. And um, yes, anyway, that was my story. And that was why Neil appearing in your book made me, you know, have wow. to, yes. had to do a double take. So, so when, God, I know, sorry, we've gone completely off, haven't we? But you, you so. With the... <laughs> <That's right. laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Sorry, so Neil, Neil yeah. is a character that when you meet, you don't forget, do you? No. No, absolutely not. He's, yeah. he's... So coming back to the <laughs> the album, so you've you've recorded the, the you know this kind of the classic album that's that that is is kind of then left to be buried just at just another diamond day at this stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... yeah. Well, like what we were talking about before about you know, music changes, and. In that sort of mid '60s part, I think that that yeah, a lot of wonderful music was being made by incredible people, and and I left all of that behind by thinking I was no good at that. Uh, and then I took off with the horse and wagon and a boyfriend and a dog, and I kept writing songs without any thought of of recording them. I never wanted to be in a recording studio again. Yes. Uh, but then I met Joe Boyd halfway through the journey and he persuaded me that once I'd finished the journey and got to the, the Hebrides, got to Sky at the time, um, that he would like to record the songs. And it took me a while to think, OK, well, maybe maybe I should do this. But um, by the time we got up there and our Joe got in contact with me again and say, have you got enough songs? I'll book a studio. And I went back down to London and we recorded it in three nights. And then I forgot about it, really. Yes. Because I had just discovered I was pregnant and that was more important to me than anything. (laughs) And uh, I didn't hear it again what we had recorded because Joe went off to America and took everything with him. Yes. And it was, well, that was recorded in the December of 69 in about the June of 70. I got an acetate recording of what Joe had put together out of the sessions and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And, and so I never, never really engaged with it at all. Uh, it came out in the December of the next year. So it was probably a year from writing the songs to when they were recorded, and then another year until it came out as an album. And in that time, as we were saying before, things changed so much at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. Who was going to listen to something like that? <laughs> yes, well, uh, 
It's interesting because I, you know, I have sort of spoke to Joe a few times. He did a book, White Bicycle, and there was an exhibition at the V&A, wasn't there? So You Want a Revolution, yeah. and he was there, and it was kind of interesting. And then last year, Rose from Incredible String Band had also written a book, and I did an interview with her. So it's kind of a, a kind of a fascinating time, and 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 you're all these paths are sort of crisscrossing so quickly at this yes. stage, aren't they? I mean, yes. it's, it is yeah. quite an extraordinary time, which, you know, I guess when you're living here, it, it, it's just what you're doing but now you look back and you're thinking god paths were just kind of going across each other at such a colossal rate at that stage they were and, and at that time i wasn't even aware of all these paths crossing I, I didn't know anybody i'd been on the road for a while i didn't know anything about recent music i didn't know who nick drake was i didn't know who the incredible string band were i, I didn't know who fairport convention were. i didn't know any of joe's other witch season people Yes. At all. And all of those people. And now, of course, I know their stories and how they probably did cross paths with mine. But at the time, I wasn't aware at all. Yes, because Joe at that stage, he'd done, he'd done the Pink Floyd, the very first bit, hadn't he? And he was still yeah. Yeah. a young, you know, he hadn't even done Nick Drake at that point, I think. Uh -huh. So he was still quite a sort of a breezy little American full of confidence. And <laughs> <laughs> absolutely because yes. i did because yes. in 60 because in 67 you know we had that kind of the summer of love and i always remember him telling me his story you know it was the 14 hour the 14 hour technicolor dream at the alley pally and he said you know they'd all taken lsd and it was just beautiful and and they came out in the morning. They take came out in the morning and went. You know, we've won. We've done it. Little did he realise it was yeah. a tiny percentage of the population that was there, and not you know hundreds <laughs> yeah. of millions. It was like yeah. a couple of thousand old hippies, you know, who were just taking yeah. pictures. And um, yeah. and then the delusion, because then the the sixties do quickly turn quite sour really you know you had the death of brian jones then hendrix morrison janice joplin you had you know manson and the beatles break up i mean it, a party couldn't end worse if you'd um paid hollywood to write a script really so it was kind of a strange time so when you were when joe wanted you to write this album were you just not in the mood at that point because of the disappointment of the train song um he didn't want me to write it. I had written most of it by the time I met him. And he, I, I wrote a few more in, in the next part of the journey before I went back down to London to record it. But he, he wasn't, he didn't direct my songwriting in any way, you know. Um, what he did direct was the instrumentation and brought in people from the string band and Fairport, wonderful musicians. But I didn't want it to be a folk album I didn't want them to be folk songs what Robert Kirby had done uh, arranging three of the songs I think it was was what I wanted was that more classical kind of orchestration rather than mandolins and banjos uh, yes that, that wasn't what I wanted and I mean now I can forgive it for what it was because it was as you say it was the crossing of all those paths that I wasn't really aware of and so I didn't I didn't have any say at that time, I was still in the same mode as I had been with Andrew Oldham, that the producer is God. And you don't say, um, no, I don't want a mandolin on that one. No. <laughs> you let it happen. And and I, I kick myself now for being such a so, so weak that I couldn't say 
I don't want a mandolin. Um, but you know, it is what it is, and and yeah, it, it is. is. I mean, would you would you prefer to have bumped into someone like Bert Backrack instead and just said, "Oh, you you get my music"? Would that be a better fit for you, sort of spiritually or kind of creatively? Wow, I've never thought of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> possibly. <laughs> Because it's funny how one gets lumped in, you know, you, you know, you obviously get lumped into this kind of category of or, or this section, don't you? And you're thinking, yeah. yeah, I can see why, but that's not really who I was. But now I can't get out of that horrible kind of thing. Whereas actually, if you're on the West Coast in sort of I don't know, Laurel Canyon with these other. Oh, it... absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would have been that would have been OK. Um but yes, I think I said in the book that, that Joe, not too long ago, I was at a Q&A with him and he turned to me and he said, I have to apologise to you for bringing in the string band and Fairport. Uh, and, and that's why you are known as a folk singer. But then I came to visit you in the Lake District. This was when we were halfway through the journey, the horse journey. You were living in a field with a horse and, and, and dogs and you were living this life which was the most folky life I had ever come across. And so, of course, I just thought that, that was what you were. But, you know, he hasn't actually listened to me and the songs and the way that I wanted to do them. Although he did bring in Robert Kirby, and I wish we'd done more with him. I really, yes. it would have been a very different record, obviously. But um, the way that it is, I still find it hard, you know. Um, and the thing I find most hard is that I am still called a folk singer. I'm still folk. And even what I, everything I've done since, you know, I, um, that's where I'm put. And I bore the socks off everybody by saying, I'm not. I'm not. A yes. <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's good. It's but it's hard. kind of interesting just that on that personal level, the, the horse and cart, because that was something that, in the 70s, you obviously quite an early adopter of this lifestyle because, you know, the community or the commune was yeah. very much in its infancy in that late 60s. But in the 70s, everyone was having a go. And there was various, you know, I know two people who did the horse and cart trip, you know, across Britain, walking right. around, you know, <laughs> not walking, but, you know, on a horse and a cart uh -huh. in most places, you know. Um, you know, following ley lines, following ancient tracks, all that kind of stuff. But that was the 70s. And that was the, you know, the self-sufficiency movement. There was, you know, various, the Cranks cookbook came out, stuff like that. So obviously, you were, you were really ahead of your time here, weren't you? So yeah, so what was it about the horse and cart that at that point that you were drawn to? Um, had no money, had no money, didn't, couldn't have a car, couldn't pay for petrol never occurred to me that horses need feeding and shod <laughs> yes <laughs> yes um but yeah it was a, a series of, of events um just uh being homeless being homeless i had met donovan who had bought these islands off sky and he won and there were ruined cottages and, and things on his land and he wanted to people it with sympathetic people not particularly to have a commune it that wasn't in his mind but just to have what he called a west coast renaissance to have people writers painters singers musicians come and people this place for him with him 
Yes. And that sounded so wonderful. And it sounded just exactly what I wanted. And uh, by complete coincidence, um, Robert and I had just found this little wagon and a horse. And we thought, well, Donovan lent us the money. He lent us £100 and we bought the horse and the, and the little cart. And, and off you off. went. So and he went to Land Rover with all his friends and we took a year and a half to get there. Amazing journey, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of hard because I had friends who decided to, I suppose, I don't know about drop out, that's not the right term, but wanted to live off grid. They got into benders, they got into teepees, they got into buses, all that kind of lifestyle, which is great when you have the idea in the middle of summer when it's quite light and bright. In the winter, it's absolutely horrendous. How did how did you manage to navigate the kind of winter period? Because also with the Scotland, I remember my trip there that I mentioned, you know, people were talking about it's almost white white nights in the summer, but it gets so dark in the winter. Very dark, very, very dark, very quickly. Um, and late in the morning, yeah. Um, well, we, we were very lucky. Halfway through the journey, we met a couple who were, uh, they had a house in the Lake District and they had just bought a croft in the Outer Hebrides uh, on, on Uist. And they gave us their house to live in for the winter to look after it while they went to restored this roofless barn <laughs> by, by, sorry, up in the Hebrides, a roofless house in the Hebrides. Yes. Without them, I mean, it was, it was November, it was already getting really, really cold and the dogs were shivering and everybody was wet. We had nothing to dry anything with. And so to be given a house, a real house, I mean, it was, wasn't the, <laughs> it, it was wonderful in that it had an arger that was, so old, all, all the bits on top were, were bent with kids sitting on them and, and it smoked and it was, you know, you think we were given a house with an auger in it and that sounds so incredible. But if you don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. But um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, the winters were, were hard and the next winter we spent on Burnery in the Hebrides, um, with a in a house that was mostly fallen down. One end of it had a bit of a thatched roof on it and an earth floor, and that was quite hard. That was quite hard, but it, again, it was what I wanted. I wanted to experience life before the the internal combustion engine. I wanted to find out how people lived those lives and I did find out and I loved it um but then I didn't want to have my baby in a house with an earth floor and no <laughs> actually it was falling into my porridge um and so I I left I left and went went back down to England but um yeah two winters that were pretty pretty incredible I, I, um, I haven't written about my year in Ireland, but traveling with a horse, as I did in Ireland, uh, through February and March, really cold, snow on the road, the horse's hooves compacted with snow, so they couldn't go any further. We had to stop. My and, God. And that is such a memory for me, looking at their hooves and thinking, how did people manage 
in the winter, you know, um, but we, we had to stop. We just had to stop until the snow had gone because the horses couldn't manage. I know I, dig I digress. But anyway, no, but it is it is fascinating because, yeah. you know, because obviously I've had friends who, you know, and, and knew quite a few people who wanted to live a very alternative lifestyle. But, you know, unless you decided to go to India for the winters and come back for the, you know, it was not very, you know, it was not really doable. And the older you got, the less likely you were going to be able to do it. So um, it was tricky at that stage. But obviously, I mean, you know, the curiosity then of, of, of you know, the album coming out, then it's not kind of properly released. I mean, it was kind of strange because I did an interview with Colin Bluntstone recently from The Zombies who did the right. classic album, but they'd broken up and did their thing for decades. And then suddenly people decades later going, this album's amazing, Colin and... Uh, Roy, is it Mr. Argent? I can't remember his question. Yeah. But yeah, so you must have also, that that was a similar one. So this album just kind of was buried, kind of left on the shelf. Yeah, Joe Boyd can't remember how many were pressed, but he thinks probably less than 300. Um, and it, yeah, I think if I had stayed in London, he offered to uh, find me somewhere to stay in London. I mean, by that time I had a, a young baby. Um if I would do shows and, and interviews and promote the album. And I'd, I'd grown up in London and tried my hardest to get out of it. And I didn't want to stay in London. I didn't want to bring up my kid in London. And so I didn't do any shows. And I did, I did two or three interviews, I think. But what he did offer me was a cottage in a row of cottages in, in Scotland that it's the incredible string band had eight cottages they were in number one three five and uh sorry six and eight and i got number two and it was empty <laughs> another winter that it was quite quite something um but yes so i i took the house in uh Ebelshire <laughs> for oh, the winter my. That's amazing, isn't it, really? I know, I remember sort of Rose, her experience, there was both the Woodstock experience, which wasn't that great, and also I think um, some of the members got into Scientology. Joining the cult was quite a thing in the sort of um, really 60s well. and 70s. Absolutely not for me. I just, it never, ever got me. Nothing ever got me. No. And, and I'm quite grateful for that really. <laughs> very grateful so how do you how do you then stumble along upon neil Oram? you know how does how does he sort of come into the narrative at this stage it's actually in the book that um we were oh dear it's a bit of a long story really but yeah um how did i come across neil Oram? well Robert and I and the wagon and the best and, and the, the, the horse and the the cart were in a beautiful, beautiful little place that we'd come across, just a lovely piece of ground by the side of the road that was a perfect place. And then suddenly this taxi drew up and a girl got out, shaven head and dove in a cage. And she had known Robert when she was very young and she had seen our picture in the local paper and she came looking for us. And she was staying with Neil Oram and his partner and their kid up at Grotteg, up at Drumladrock, uh, up at Grotteg. Yes. I don't know if it's called that anymore. It probably isn't. But um, she persuaded us that that would be a really good place to go 
and it was out of our way. We were supposed, you know, we were going to be turning off to go towards sky. But we went and it, I really didn't want to go. And then we had a terrible accident with the horse and the cart on the way. And uh, so we had to stay at Grotteg for a while. And that's when I got to know Neil. Um, and he was actually really important to me in that he, he talked to me and not many people did at that time, <laughs> especially my partner. Um, so it was really, he was very interesting to me. Uh, and um, well, all kinds of things happened there that I don't actually go into in the book, but it meant that I had to go back to London and he looked after the horse and the dogs for me. And um, actually it was, I don't know if he was married or if she was his partner, but they had a little girl, I think she was called Celeste. Right. And uh, they were really, they were really kind, really kind to me. And um, when, when things went very wrong between me and Robert. Uh, and so I remember him well, you know. Yes. I, I did meet him again when my son Leaf was with the um, Clown Jewels. Um, and Neil, well, I think the house had burned out by that time and, and uh, they were just using, they were all staying in car caravans and using the house just to cook. Uh, and Neil had a, a cottage away some, somewhere on, on that ground. And Leif, my son, is an amazing mechanic and always has been right from when he was little. And Neil couldn't get his car going. <laughs> and Leif went and just sort of fiddled with the engine. It went broom. <laughs> And Neil apparently was very impressed. So that was the only time I came across him in later later life. But yeah, that would have been in 86, 87. God, that's amazing. Uh -huh. I'm going to have some strange dreams tonight now. Oh dear, sorry. <laughs> I, I might as well. I might as well. Oh my God. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. times and moments. So you, you know, because yeah. I, I spoke to, it was a guy called Richard Barnes who, he didn't have a cart, but he had a horse and he walked across, you know, the the you know, England for a year and he wrote a book. I mean, and then I was taught, I, you know, spoke to him and did an interview and he, you know, eventually he has to, you know, the horse goes back to somebody else. I mean, what was your relationship like with your, you know, horse? Because obviously this is Bess, isn't it? Your, yes. Um, oh, she was what kept us together, really, because we had so many fights and so many terrible times and wonderful times terrible times whenever I thought I can't do this anymore I thought well I mean who's going to take the horse <laughs> yes I know. I'm a bit I'm who's the same actually the who's going to have the cats yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I know and so often it was the horse that kept me going for, for all of the journey she was the most incredible creature she was much older than we'd been told and She'd had a life, you know, in, in London as a delivery person. And um, I just adored her, really adored her. Yes. Uh, and she was very standoffish. She was very independent in lots of ways. Uh, but every so often there was just a little, little window where I would 
get her and she would get me. And it, it was, yeah, it was a lovely relationship, really. And she was an incredible, incredible animal. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, yes. <laughs> I know. Amazing, amazing moments, aren't they, really? Yeah. I mean, then, and then, you know, when when the sort of 70s kind of kicks in, you obviously, this is children, family, and quite a different life then for the next decade. Oh, yeah. Well, when I was at the Glen, at Glenrow, in my little number two cottage, was when Diamond Day came, well, sort of came, came out, kind of. <laughs> and there was a review in one of the music papers which said it made the, um, the reviewer depressed. And I remember standing outside the house with this newspaper, well, this music paper, and reading that and thinking, although I didn't know that it was depression that had pushed me away from London and made me do these crazy things with a horse and wagon, I kind of recognised that word and I thought, well, this is what I tried to get away from. And yet, in doing this album, I have made somebody unhappy. And I closed that paper. And I never, ever picked up my guitar again until I was teaching my 16-year-old son to play it. That was right. that. was that. I thought, I, I, I obviously can't do this. I don't like the album enough to be promoting it. People are not liking it. Nobody ever mentions it. The string band never mentioned it. My neighbours never had anything to do with it. My family never mentioned it. And I buried it. For 30 yeah. years. <laughs> 30 years. Well, it, it's interesting because um, there was a woman called Helen O'Hara and she brought a book out re uh, last year called What's She Like? And she was in Dexy's Midnight Runners in the early 80s and they had a very intense period. And eventually, you know, she put her violin away and then and then sort of got on with the rest of her life after a certain period of time and then had to get it out again. And she said it was really, you know, that, that kind of okay, I'm getting this instrument out, which has been part of me. You know, I've grown up from the oh. very early age, went to college to do it and everything else. And then suddenly it's it's kind of there. It's it's a bit like some monolith, isn't it? I mean, the guitar. So this was your the guitar from the 60s that you suddenly one day sort of picked up again. Yes, yeah. that must have been quite something. Was it Was it slightly, did you have to put your um, feelings to one side because of Leaf and thinking, no, I need to do it for him, but this is a bit of a weird one. To, to, to put it aside because I was bringing up a baby? No, um, I did your kind of feelings towards the guitar. You know, your 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 honest feelings would have been like, I still don't want to touch it, but because your son was kind of curious, did you have yeah. to just push through that kind of barrier or block and then just get on with it and think oh my god this is weird yeah it was really weird I didn't want to play it for myself but I I stood behind him and played with him and uh but I never played it for myself right from, from at, at that time I it was I've got the story of the guitar in the book a lovely little thing that's in California now with my son but um I kept it and it just went everywhere with me, just getting dustier and dustier. Um, and actually Leaf repaired it when he was about 16, 17. And, uh, and that's when I taught him to play. Uh, 
he plays beautifully now and his son has that guitar and he plays it it's just it's lovely you know the, an instrument well i tell a story in the book about how i had it was getting repaired by a lute maker friend of joe boyd's because it had been run over on the way back on the way to uh recording diamond day and i was lent another guitar um but i had a nightmare that the lute maker had mended it okay mended the neck but that he had replaced the machine heads with plastic and chrome ones from a, a country and western style guitar whereas the old ones had been old brass and old bone and were you know part of this incredibly old guitar and when i went to collect it sure enough he had done that and so you know and instrument really must you know a bit like my relationship with the horse you know yes my relationship with my guitar was so close that i knew when it had been ruined and when it had been spoiled uh my son actually he, he well we, we we did get the old ones back from the loot makers workshop <laughs> he just took them back and my son when he was 16 he he replaced the horrible country in the western ones with the originals and uh he's got it and i'm really glad that 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 an instrument can keep keep going through a family you know and uh i miss it in a way I... yes <laughs> it's amazing it's an amazing story because actually there was a completely different sort of band from the late 70s, early 80s, who were called the Rockettes, who were sort of a rockabilly, psychobilly band. And they were in New York. They had been from Essex. They went to New York with a guy called um, Lee Black Childers and hung out in that scene. And he had his double bass stolen. And then he's, you know, life went on. And um, he lives in Norway now. And then one day, sort of someone spotted it in some, you know, like secondhand instrument shop and it had smutty on it. And he was like, that's my, that's my guitar. Someone stole it because they had all the van had been stolen with all the equipment in. And this, this double bass, this huge double bass, which was kind of black and beautiful with his name written on, appeared in this person's shop. And, it, and, and so there was a, you know, a bit of a newspaper media thing that went around and the bloke said, no, that's mine. I'm, I, I want the money. And it's like, well, no, that's mine. It's been stolen in the yeah. early 80s. I want it back, kind of. And eventually, you know, because of the pressure he did. But he had the same experience. It was like this kind of, that's that's oh. that's just not any old double bass. That was, that was, that's me. So you had a really <laughs> similar experience with your guitar. Yes, really. Yeah. And that it came into my dream, you know, that, that it had been wrecked. But yeah, uh, I don't, I, well, actually I've got an old Gibson that I really love now. <laughs> um, it's really funny there. Uh, it, it, it is old and battered and it doesn't behave terribly well live on stage. And so uh, I was going to do a show in Singapore a few years ago and I bought a new Martin thinking that that that, that would be better really. God, I hated it. <laughs> I couldn't come to like it at all. But my old Gibson from 1972. Um, yeah, I, I, I love it. I love it. It's funny. Yeah. Yes. How you get completely attached. Well, absolutely. And just, I mean, you know, like it's been so many decades. What was it like then when the idea came of 
recording the second album you know the the kind of the slightly sometimes they refer to it as the tricky second album but this is kind of quite a different episode isn't it because this is decades yeah. have gone I mean yeah. how how were you kind of emotionally dealing with thinking about that again yeah. well it was when Diamond Day came out again in 2000 and I was completely convinced that the same thing was going to happen that it was going to be dismissed as nursery rhymes for kids it was lightweight twiddly d stuff i thought that would happen again and it didn't that the reviews were much more thoughtful were much more uh sympathetic to the fact that it was of its time and that it was a document of late 60s um and that actually made me able to pick up a guitar again and start and these songs came tumbling out that maybe had been there for years, but I wasn't aware of them. Um, and it was uh, Glenn Johnson of Piano Magic got in touch and wanted me to sing a song on his next album. And that was in about 2002. And I didn't know if I could sing. I hadn't yeah. sung for 30-something years. And uh, But I went down to London and I, I stood in front of a microphone with his song and I realised I could sing, and it was it sounded exactly the same as it ever had. And I came out of there thinking, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to I'm going to make another album. I'm going to do it. And I didn't know who to, who with or how, but that's when I started writing songs again. And it it also co coincided with my last child leaving home because I had a child when I was 41, so I was doing school runs for quite a lot of years, and then he went <laughs> to, to, to college in America, and um, extraordinary, he got a basketball uh, <laughs> place in a college in America. But anyway, yes, when he went away, and I had the most horrendous empty nest, awful, awful, and that's when I started writing songs again. All of wow. that all of that emotion yes god that was so was that possibly the first time in your whole life that you closed the door and were thinking i'm the only one in this home house yeah oh, well, my partner is here uh not the father of my kids but my my partner now yeah he, uh, um when when well, we've got six kids between us, and yes. so the house had always been really busy and really noisy. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so when suddenly it was all quiet, you know, and maybe maybe I was filling the space. I don't know. I don't know yes. if that's what happened. And then you did, you know, there was obviously, there was, so the, the, the one that came out, it, that was 2005, which is... Uh, looking this is on sort of fat cat records did yes. you sort of find that you know your your kind of you know your critical and creative stock had sort of gone through the roof was there a bit of a bidding war at this stage to have wanting you to record on their album um, their no. label no not at all um i think no <laughs> no not at all no and i met fat cat through animal collective because they wanted me to 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 record some vocals on, on an, an EP called Prospect Hummer. And I, I met Dave Howell from Fat Cat while we were doing those sessions. And he said, so what are you doing now? And I said, well, I've got a few songs. He said, well, send them to me. I did. And the next thing I knew, they came up to Edinburgh and, and uh, 
wanted to sign me to Fat Cat. And at that time, there was nothing like me on Fat Cat. Yes. And I was just so, so pleased. And also the difference between the Andrew Oldham days and the Joe Boyd days and everything that had happened through the 60s to, to being with these young guys uh, who were so respectful and really wanted it to be the way I wanted it to be. And they introduced me to Max Richter, who was still living in Edinburgh at that time, to produce and to help arrange what an amazing experience you know, to have it be so different to have to be included in in the process yes it was such a shock really that, that <laughs> it was absolutely wonderful and uh, yeah again when when look after him was about to come out i was hiding under my bed more or less <laughs> thinking, oh my god what's gonna happen but again it was lovely and i managed to tour the world with it which is again you know sort of a completely different different experience to my younger self in music yes well that's I mean you must I mean I say you must but not necessarily but it it must kind of we you know processing what happened in the 60s must felt quite different with that kind of new chapter that happened in the kind of O years, if it hadn't sort of come again, you know, you would have just possibly had just left it there dormant and just had a bit of a, that was a bit strange, but it was able to to reprocess, I guess, it, and then write in the book as well. Must, have been, yeah. must at times be a little bit of a sense of therapeutic kind of, um, yeah, processing, you know, I think, yeah. I think often when people write these things, you know the the chapters or the bits that are going to be really difficult and they're put to one side you know one day they just have to do it and go through it yeah. and then think actually I'm looking at it slightly differently and I'm feeling a lot better now totally totally and the and the thing that happened in between it all um was that Kieran Evans made a film made a documentary we over a couple of years we re-traveled the the road that I'd done with the made with the horse and wagon and he made this film called from here to before uh, about it and interviewing me along the way he actually filmed 80 hours of me <laughs> going on <laughs> that was the therapeutic part of it he was my therapist for all of those hours with his camera on his shoulder until it hurt listening to me going on about all the things that had happened along the way and yes. I just it was really helpful when I came to 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 write the book. Uh, it helped me to remember some things that that had happened, and uh, because the film was very definitely chronological, from London up to the Outer Hebrides, um, I didn't want the book to be like that. I wanted to bring other stories in between, other characters in between. Um, but I suppose it is in the end, it's chronological with a few bits in between. Yes. Um, and, I mean, yes, that must have kind of given, you know, a lot of those kind of memories a, a sort of a, a bit of a shine, really, as in reawake, reawakened them and sort of brought them back into your consciousness. Yes. And, and also 
questioning myself, questioning my memories. Is this right? Am I remembering it right or have I got it completely wrong? Um, but in the end, I thought, well, they're my memories. <laughs> and, <laughs> and other people can can challenge me if they want. And there was only one challenge, uh, which I did put right between the, the proof version and the eventual version. Um, but yeah, my sister-in-law actually said, well, you know, don't worry about it. It's your memories. It's what's in your head. And that's what you're putting on the page. And that's fine. Just leave it at that. Uh, and the memories are very, very clear. There are some that aren't like at the beginning of the horse journey. I can't remember any of it at all, really. <laughs> but yes. As we got further and further into it, and I realized what I was doing, and then uh, I, I can remember it very, very well. And they're I all. I was going to say, I guess being there again in that in those spaces and having mm. the time, yeah, is a lot stronger than trying to sit there, you know, at the kitchen table, trying to remember it. You know, you must yeah. have been able to almost sense the sort of moments and some of the occasions when you were sort of on those tracks. With that, you know, with the horse and the cars, yeah. and that's yes. um... and, and and I well, I had started writing it ages ago in about 96, 97 when I first got a computer, and I wanted to write the story for my kids. Um, and I sent a synopsis around all kinds of people and got no reply whatsoever. Uh, so I ditched it every so often, I would come back to it and, and rewrite a part, but it was the beginning of lockdown actually that uh made it made it happen it was kieran kieran evans who made the film yes he phoned me just out of the blue and uh he said what are you doing and i said mm, what am i doing I'm not doing oh i'm writing <laughs> it's a complete lie <laughs> and he said um oh well i know somebody who'd be really keen to hear what to, to read what you're writing and that was lee braxton of white rabbit and uh so i sent him stuff and it it all took off from there. And I hadn't written all of it by that time. Yeah. But time through lockdown, um, I was really able to get get down to it and make myself remember the things that had happened. Um, and yeah, being edited is quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, because uh, songs, song lyrics don't get edited. You know, they are what they are, and they, they don't get changed. But yeah, um, this was a whole different, different experience altogether. It's been beautifully. I mean, and that's that's something that, that you'll you'll know more than the reader. But it's been beautifully illustrated as well. It's. I mean, it's got a really gorgeous vibe to it you know with these oh, drawings and these pictures and you uh -huh. know there's got a real set I mean it does you know like I said it, it you know I've only just got the pdf which isn't quite the same so I'll need to get a copy but you know it did bring back lots of memories of people of memory you know like there was you know various people who did a book on walking this ley line across the UK you know in the 70s probably because that's what people did you know the St Michael's well, that, ley line that, that's the book. yeah that, that that's what people a lot of people were doing yeah you know and this and it's like yeah this is what we did you know 
I say mm. we, but you know, it's it's kind of uh, and there's an artist called Richard Long and Andy Goldsworthy would be doing these kind of landscape art and and sort of seeing the book and reading the and then sort of seeing certain characters appearing and and that mm. kind of that you know you capture the time so beautifully you know this. This is what people did. They got horse and carts and they sort of went on these adventures <laughs> and ended up in Scotland, forgetting how cold and dark it is in winter, you know. But at the time, it seems like a great idea. And the fact that it's so expensive as well. So, um, but that's just details, isn't it? When you're young, you just do it. Oh, goodness. Yes. And I think for us, it was because we had nothing. You know, we, we absolutely didn't have anything. Um, My family was not terribly keen on me going off with an art student and sleeping in a six foot by three foot bread wagon without being married <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty shocking and uh and having a baby out of wedlock and all of those things but um yeah it was I think well, I've said many times I wasn't making any kind of statement. I wasn't making any kind of comment, social comment. I really wasn't. I was doing what I had to do because I had no money. N nobody that was looking after me in any way. And it was all I could do at the time. And it seemed like it, it wasn't like it seemed like it was a good idea. It was the only idea. Yes, I know. Well, to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure squats appeared before the 80s, but there was a lot in the 80s in different cities. And I think most people went, well, that's all that was the only thing we felt at the time we could do. And that was the best that we could do. And that's what we did for mm -hmm. two years until we couldn't cope with it anymore. <laughs> and then thought, God, this is too this is too hard. But it's a great idea when you when you, you when there isn't you feel like there's any no other kind of options or this is the thing and other people are doing it a little bit and this is what we can do so i think it's it's yeah. marvelous it's a, it's a great story and just just briefly because i mean then when you you know you bring out this album you also work with a guy called anthony Re is it reynolds you know reynolds yes yeah. yes because i've done an interview with him as well which is bizarrely inc incredible character and writer of ma yeah. many books and bands and i mean yeah. what was what was it like suddenly having i mean he was more of the 80s and Britpop period of the 90s so what was it like kind of suddenly being not the darling of, of a new generation but certainly like you said he heavily respected yeah yeah it was it was was wonderful yeah Anthony yeah I, I recorded one of his songs with Simon Raymond um and I don't know he was just oh, so funny so funny and in the same way that Devendra Banhart was just somebody that I had never met anybody like him in my life and Anthony was the same that uh it just swept me along in in this I don't know, this picture, I suppose, of a different kind of life, um, different kind of person who I'd never really come across before. And uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I haven't actually seen him since then, since that recording. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, one of the most memorable people of all of that time, meeting all those people when I first started coming back into music. Yes, and yeah. they have a different narrative to probably your previous yeah. set of people who have the same cultural 
Interest. I often find it's a lot easier to sort of um, communicate, not relate to, but it's just kind of nice because there's nothing in particularly in common. So there's no competitiveness or no, oh, let's go and talk about the old days because it's like we have no idea. So actually, it's quite nice. Yeah. And, and that was something that really struck me was the lack of competitiveness between musicians and bands and how generous they were to each other instead of being so competitive as, as, as you know, as I had been. I was jealous of anybody who didn't, you know, did anything better than me. But um, it was that mutual respect between musicians that I, I, I really enjoyed and, and loved about them, and it gave me hope, you know, that actually maybe, maybe this younger generation will actually uh, help. <laughs> 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 well it's interesting i would imagine and i'm just guessing here but i think when people meet like you know that those musicians you mentioned they probably think the one thing i don't want to come over like is a complete tosser so i'm going to be as nice as possible and just hope that you'll like me because you just don't want to go away again god did i act like a bit of a tosser there and it's like no you're great you know so you know what i mean so i think you get probably yeah. get a lot of that vibe from people I, that you I, you work with because they're yeah. probably not wanting to annoy you and um, yeah you know <laughs> Yeah, well, that's great. That is good, isn't it? <laughs> I know. So there you go. I think that's. Yeah, I can deal with that. Yeah. Yes, it's nice. It's nice to be lovely. nice. It's I think lovely. that's the that's it, nice. It really is nice. Yeah. Yes. So once you know, because I think the book now is getting published in America, isn't it? It's or has well, it... it's getting. It'll be available there. It's not a different version, but it will be made available there. Yes. So then. So, so then once this is kind of the process has happened again, I mean, what do you then look for for the next kind of chapters in life or the next? Um, oh, grandchildren. grandchildren. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, lots of them. But um, for for me, there's a bit in the book where I say uh, where, where we went to Ireland and we travelled with horses and wagons in Ireland just for a year. But I haven't really said what happened there. And I've put in the book that that's maybe for another time. And that's what I'm writing now is right. about that year in Ireland, 1970 to 71. Right. Uh, Watch this space. It. It, 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 what an extraordinary time. And I'm sure it'd be unrecognisable now to how it was then. But walking across Ireland from Dublin to Galway Bay, spending the winter there. And then traveling up through through the north to Belfast and then back to Scotland with horses and dogs and chickens and a cat and, and a baby. <laughs> <laughs> the adventures that we had and the difference between the south of Ireland and the north of, of Ireland is something I really want to try to get down on paper. It's really hard. It's harder, in fact, than writing Wayward. Um because there are a lot of people I don't want I don't want to hurt them or identify them, but uh, it was an extraordinary time, and we were extraordinary. We had no idea of danger. It just didn't cross our minds, which yes. is as well. We weren't frightened of anything, even people with guns. <laughs> even people, even, yes, I know. There's some horrendous stories of sort of a. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the band, but they they all got 
I don't know if it was the late 70s, but it was one of these kind of show, not show band, but one of those rather popular bands who crossed the border and all got machine gunned. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, I think it was just like a story that you just couldn't imagine, you know, happening. People, you know, yes. So dangerous. And and yet, you know, we just, we just blundered through it, really. Well, it's a fascinating time as well, isn't it? That early seventies, and I get, and actually, it's interesting because we get the narrative of decades written by certain people, and then you get other stories that start to come out, which adds layers to it. And suddenly, I find that it's like, okay, that's another kind of chapter. We used to hear this person, and it was this, this, and this, you know. And it, and you, you know, we can see that from sort of you know history of britain you know like it's the kings and queens and the aristocracy and then it's like you suddenly get all these other stories and i think telling them is a really important thing because actually you know you have that story and no one else has it and to tell it is like oh that's going to awaken a lot of people's insights that would not have a clue another layer yes just another layer and uh, i hope i can do it yes it's just <laughs> But just, uh, in the meantime, I, I um, go around reading, reading wayward to people, which is lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, it's been absolutely amazing and it's just incredible to uh, sort of uh, sort of conjure up my memories of Drumlodge Rocket there with you and probably your son, Leaf. Sorry, it's... it was so painful for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great to have a, your heart broken when you're young, isn't it? You know. Oh. No, it's not. You know, it's it's so traumatizing at the time. You know, you have such hope with these relationships, and then and you realize. Did she, stay, did she stay with the, the theatre band? Did she stay with them? Yeah, she stayed there. She travelled during that winter with them because I think she had been a bit of a a performer herself and could play saxophone and perform. So she she joined them, and I remember getting a few letters talking about them traveling around on this bus you know, doing these tours of, you know, Scotland and, well, yeah, I guess it was Scotland and the islands. And then she stayed in Scotland and I never saw her again. So um, (laughs) it's life, isn't it? I know. So it's kind of, and and then I sort of realised that probably that back theatre company was probably your son. So amazing. Yeah, well, he was only 16, but yeah. But it was definitely 87 I was there. It was definitely there. Right, well, he was there 86, 87. And um, I know Neil had this kind of bunch in the the barn. And, yeah, they were, you know, and I watched them performing a little number together. And uh, we stayed a few nights on a bus. And then we we went off and then I came back. We, you know, left her there and um, drove back to East Anglia. So um, there you go. So there you go. How amazing! How absolutely <laughs> amazing. <laughs> so, what was your what was the what was the theatre company called again? Um, uh, the Clown Jewels, the Clown right. Jewels, and he was Leaf Leaf Lewis. He was he was a juggler and a unicyclist and just general performer. Yeah. Yes, Loved and then it. and just curious, what's did he keep in the performing arts, or did he go off and do other things? Um, he then. Um, uh, I think how old would he have been? Seventeen, eighteen. He he joined something called Circus Archaeus on a motorbike. Yes, and uh, went to Australia, went all over the place with them, and then decided that he wanted to go to Los Angeles and make his fortune, <laughs> as people do, um, and uh, fell back on being an extraordinary 
motorbike uh, expert mechanic, and he now restores British bikes in uh, Ojai, California. And um, he's he's an, he's an incredible kid, really. He was always he could listen to an engine and know what was wrong with it, um, which was why he was able to do Neil's. Yes, <laughs> Neil's car. Um, and yes, he's always just loved engines. Uh, but he's also a really good musician, you know, uh, and his son. But, Excellent. Yeah, God, this I know, is it's, it's lovely. It's lovely. They've all been so different. You know, he, he was he was the, the engineer and my daughter is a painter. And my son, my youngest one, is a personal trainer. Um and he's just had a baby, and that did. Uh, they're all so different to each other. <laughs> it's lovely. Oh, it's fantastic! I'm so pleased. It's such a nice story. I had no idea that I got an extra bit there. God, Lee. Yeah, <laughs> God, that was amazing. Yes, yeah. everyone had a theatre company in the eighties, didn't they? Yeah. It was well, I think traveling around the Highlands in a bus. It was it was extraordinary. It really was. And I I don't know if they're still going. I think uh, it was John McGee who who was the boss. I don't right. know if he's still doing the same thing. Well, I know when I did my interview with Neil, and it was last year. I mean, he he wasn't in Drumler Drocker. I think he got he was staying somewhere in Dorset in a nice little house bungalow, and he and I think he was a bit fed up with. The scene that was that that was there at Drumla Drocket, you know, I think he just wanted his own time and space and stuff. But um, he had the most extraordinary story in life. God, it was you know something else. It still it still chills me what he's talked about. So um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I know there were whole aspects of it that I wasn't very happy about, but um, yeah. So he's still all right. He's still all right. And I think, oh, I think he's also doing some either painting or book or exhibition and stuff. So um, uh -huh. did he get you into Count Basie and Big Bark, but Big Jazz Sounds? He loved, you know, the... the we the have no musical connection at all. No, nothing. No. Yeah. But anyway. But, oh. yeah. Anyway, that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know how to um, round a interview off so concisely. Anyway, a massive thank you to Vashti Bunyan for giving me the time for that. The book, which is titled Wayward, Just Another Life to Live, is going to be coming out um, in the United States in hardback 2023. I know, I got the date. Yeah, right, which is very good. I think it's going to be March. On White Rabbit Publishing, so do check it out. And also... Her, um, yes, all her musical sort of material is available here, there and everywhere. It's an amazing book, beautifully illustrated, so um, I do highly recommend it. This has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Indeed. Indeed, so many, including Neil Orham, so do check that one out. Um, that's on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>